This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, we have been hearing from RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky speaking, answering questions into the inquiry into the deadliest gun rampage in Canadian history, talking about the 2020 Nova Scotia mass shooting. Well, joining us now to talk about what the commissioner has been saying is Greg Mercer. Greg Mercer is the Globe and Mail's Atlantic Canada reporter. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, how would you describe uh, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky's demeanor uh, as she answers questions? How would you describe her testimony? I mean, so far it's been revealing. Uh, she's she, she frankly seemed, uh, you know, surprisingly um, out of touch with the, with this inquiry so far. It doesn't seem like she's been paying a whole lot of attention to the concerns on the ground, and. Um, She's been getting a lot of questions that she doesn't seem to have answers for. And, and I get that the commissioner's, uh, you know, is at a high level uh, operating at a distance from this stuff, but she does seem very, um, like she's hearing this stuff for the first time, many of the concerns about that mass shooting. Which is a bit surprising, isn't it, given that she has been questioned before and she did speak before a parliamentary committee about this. Yeah, absolutely. And on that point, uh, you know, she's been accused of, of political interference, of being very involved in the investigation of the shooting and, and pressing the Nova Scotia RCP to share details on the guns because she said that would help uh, the, the Liberals' gun control legislation that was upcoming. Uh, yesterday, she said that's no big deal. She doesn't understand why people are concerned about that. And in her view, it's perfectly normal for the commissioner to get heavily involved in a police investigation uh, and to share that information with with uh, you know her political counterparts uh, in Nova Scotia, they strongly disagree, and they said you compromised our investigation. And because of the pressure that she was putting on Nova Scotia officers, or the pressure she was putting on them to release that information. Yeah. So what they're saying is, I mean, we we release information strategically. There were people we wanted to question about the type of guns used by the gunmen, and you're telling us to release it to the public to boost support for upcoming legislation. They're like you're you. That puts us in a compromising position where, where people know things before we want them to know. When we're actively questioning people as part of an ongoing criminal investigation. And let's not forget, this was the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. I mean, this, there were serious interviews that were being conducted at that time, just days after the shooting. And was one of the arguments uh, I, th- I thought I had read in your piece was that uh, that she made or that was it made at the inquiry as well was what's kind of, kind of along the lines of what's the big deal in this particular case because the gunman was dead it wasn't going to be compromising the investigation to release that information. Right. So so lawyers for families have countered right, but there was nothing in in that uh, legislation that would have done anything to help uh, or uh, prevent this kind of attack. So. What you were really doing was was trying to maximize the tragedy for for political gain. That there was no benefit to the investigation to uh, to releasing that information at that time. 
Right. And that's what I found interesting in the one of the quotes that you used the, where she, she was talking about or answering questions about that political interference. And she even said, it wasn't as big as you're making it out to be. I'm trying to explain mm-hmm. myself seven ways to Sunday. It's very frustrating. Uh, I, I found that odd that, she's, that she was admitting it, but saying, don't worry, it wasn't that big of a deal. Because I think, like you say, the lawyer for the families, the families, there are many people who's, who are saying, actually, this is a big deal. Yeah, I think that was a surprising moment during her testimony that she does not seem to get how how much this angered people and how bad it looks. Um, you know, her her view is that yeah, this this wouldn't compromise anything. What's the harm in me getting heavily involved in this investigation? The families see it as clearly trying to exploit their pain uh, for for a political purpose, um, and and it's it's hard to understand how she, she cannot see that point of view. Uh, she also made comments or, or talked about the fact that the RCMP, uh, she felt that they weren't getting uh, great coverage or that the, the narrative that around reporting on the RCMP wasn't all that positive. Did that also kind of come as a surprise? Yeah, she spent a lot of time focusing on that, uh, complaining that the coverage of the RCMP after the shooting was not favorable and that that hurt morale and, and, and she was bothered by that. And, some of the lawyers really pressed her on that. They're just saying, how could you put a positive spin uh, on, on, on the police response when we, we know about many mistakes that the police made during this, including failing to notify the public when they knew what the gunman was driving. They knew his name. They did not share that stuff. And people died as a result because they kept it secret. Uh, in one instance, two Mounties shot up a fire hall that was supposed to be uh, you know, a, a, an evacuation center during the manhunt. They, it was a case of mistaken identity, uh, identity, and they opened fire. That's a bad look for the RCMP. So the lawyers were saying, how, do we, how would you have reported that positively? Um, that's the stuff that didn't seem to make sense. She seemed to be a little disconnected from the reality on the ground. Yeah, and, and the part about the shooting up of the fire hall uh, as well, I think, yeah, exactly like you said, how are you supposed to put a positive spin? And it's not as if people are making this up. People are reporting and talking about mistakes, like you say, mistakes that were made. Absolutely, yeah. And there's, there's been a, a bit of a general theme among some of the senior RCP that they're, they're, they're quite disinterested in any kind of examination of mistakes that they made. They seem, frankly, a little... Uh, irritated with being hauled before this inquiry. They don't want to have to answer these questions. They want to move forward. They don't want to look backward. But the lawyers for the families of 22 victims say, um, we have an obligation to examine mistakes that the RCMP made, and we're not doing our job if we don't. Uh, would you say that the political interference is kind of overtaking as far as what the, the line of questioning at the inquiry and trying to get more information about that? Or is that even, is it to, not taking away from, but or is it kind of parallel to the inquiry itself and the, the, the shooting itself and kind of lessons learned? I think to some degree it, it is. I mean, you know, the, the commissioner gave hours and hours of testimony yesterday. Much of it was not about uh, the political interference stuff, but certainly that's getting a lot of the attention. She is she is today speaking about, um, you know, the lack of response by the RCMP, why they have not changed policy or updated training, you know, 28 months after this horrific event. Um, so we're getting into some other stuff. But yeah, and, and we've heard that complaint from families of victims that, unfortunately, the political interference stuff is kind of consuming a lot of the oxygen around the inquiry. But I do think we're, we're getting into some of the other issues now. Right. And and also because uh, she also talked about her disappointment with the RCMP communication and specifically that communication with the public. So that that would imply that perhaps there are going to be changes made there. 
Yeah, she indicated this morning that there there are some changes coming. She couldn't offer any specifics. Um, you know, she she said we're we're reviewing everything. Although people have said, well, okay, you've had 28 months. Why has there not been a single review that's released? There's not been a single review that's been completed. Um, you know, what are you what are you waiting for? There there have been you know two cycles of cadets released through the you know the National Police Academy. And they've had no updates or changes to their training uh, from as a result of lessons learned from this. Um, so they're saying, well, what are you waiting for? Uh, and what are we expecting then moving forward uh, with the testimony at the inquiry? So she's going to continue to be cross-examined today. That will go most of the day. Um, we're going to hear from a few more witnesses in the coming weeks, you know, including the chief of police of Halifax, um, who, who's frustrated with how the RCMP handled uh, this uh, the mass shooting uh, that's going to continue from for much of September and then in November the inquiry is supposed to deliver a set of recommendations to government uh, and to the RCMP to to help uh, try to prevent this kind of thing from happening again all right Greg Mercer thank you so much again for taking the time with us this morning appreciate it my pleasure Thanks. this is mornings with Simi 622 on this Wednesday morning. Our question of the day has to do with buying concert tickets or any event tickets. So what's the worst experience you've ever had buying the tickets or probably more likely trying to get a refund if the event or concert was cancelled? Well, Raji Sohal is joining us right now. Mornings with Simi contributor. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. Gosh, this question of the day really had me thinking way back early to being a kid because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Britpop and I would go see any band from England that would play here, whatever venue I'd go. I'd go with my sisters who were older who often had to sneak me in because I was way underage. And I remember seeing the band Oasis at the Pacific Coliseum. And there was so much time between buying the ticket and then the day it was actually going to go down that I no longer even liked the band, but it was an expensive ticket. So I just said, okay, let's go. Let's go to this concert very reluctantly with my older sisters. And the band goes on stage extremely late, making everybody wait for ages before they take stage. They barely get through a couple of songs before they walk off stage. The, someone in the audience had apparently like thrown a shoe on stage and it had struck one of the band members and they went into a big tizzy about it and they stormed off stage. And then nobody came on stage to say, that's actually it. The band is done. They're so annoyed by this shoe thing, agitated, whatever. They're not coming back on. So people just kind of stood and lingered for another hour waiting to see if the band was going to come back on. They never did. So I go home with my sisters, very disappointed, and then we find out that there's a push to get concert ticket value back because everyone had paid for, you know, whatever at the time, I think it was like $45 or $50, a lot of money, especially for a kid that didn't work yet. (laughs) So I think it was my hard-earned collected birthday money. (laughs) And uh, we had to hang on for any kind of announcement about getting our tickets back. So what they did was... uh, the ticket, I don't even know what it would have been, I think Ticketmaster at the time, they did a calculation. They were like, okay, so how much would it be worth for all these people to have seen the band play for like a song and a half? And then they returned some portion of the ticket amount back to us. And I think we got back a quarter of the ticket price. 
So needless to say, that was my most annoying, irritating ticket experience. And I've, and I've bought a lot of tickets in my time. Wow. I've never heard of them trying to calculate how much the refund should be. Interesting that they went about it that way. Yeah, my preference would have been a full refund because I don't go to see just a song and a half. And then furthermore, they made us wait. They made us wait ages before the band went on, ages afterwards. The only fun element to this was that afterwards, uh, the band member of Oasis would slag Vancouver off any opportunity he had for the next like year in the media. And I started reading about Vancouver being a terrible place <laughs> um, in all these like British tabloids uh, anytime that he was... Uh, talking about concerts that was entertaining but i totally sympathize with these people who in vancouver have purchased tickets for the vancouver e-fest and haven't heard anything about getting their cash back it's apparently thirty thousand ticket holders are waiting to find out now that event we know was canceled four months ago and surely i think an organizing body that large could figure out how to give folks their cash back yeah we'll talk about that or we'll cover that a bit more on the program raji thank you Thanks, Jill. Mornings with Simi. Well, the municipal elections are just around the corner, so we are going to take a little bit of time to look specifically at the race in Vancouver. There is a new poll. It was put out by Forum Research, and according to this poll, ABC's Ken Sim is leading the mayoral race with about 18.7% support, followed by Forward Together's Kennedy Stewart at about 15.6% and Councillor Colleen Hart. Hardwick in third place at around 15%. This, of course, just one poll, but we wanted to take a look at what is happening in this race. So Dr. Hamish Telford joins us now, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome, Jill. Uh, What is your take on these numbers? And again, I know this is only one poll and we're still uh, a few weeks away from the civic elections, but what is your take on what's happening in the Vancouver race? Yes, I think we have to take this poll with with a pinch of salt. Um, It's a poll released in the height of summer. I think most people in Vancouver this week are worried about getting enough wine for the barbecue this weekend, not the election two months from now. Um, This is a poll that's a little problematic. It was actually financed by one of the parties in the race. We can come back to that. Um, It's a relatively small sample size, which means it has a high margin of error. uh, And upwards of a third of the people in the poll didn't know who to support. (laughs) So with all of those caveats, it's showing that the three leading contenders are more or less uh, in a horse race right now with with perhaps Ken Sims slightly out ahead and Kennedy Stewart a little bit back. But two months out, um, a lot can change. Uh, exactly. And uh, like you say, it's uh, one poll done in the height of summer with a heat warning in place. Uh, do you think there are issues for people that do follow it along really closely or uh, who maybe who have had concerns with the council? Do things like the Broadway plan, are those going to be big issues when it comes to people voting? Uh, It could be. Uh, That is shaping up as one of the issues. Um, And this poll did find that that was uh, a source of concern. And and one of the candidates and one of the parties, uh, Team for a Livable Vancouver, is pushing that theme uh, fairly hard. But I think more broadly, um, the issue, one of the major issues in this is the the densification of the city and how people move around the city. Um, Those are are going to be huge issues, I think, in, in this election campaign. 
And what about the issues of crime, the issues of safety, public safety, and how people are feeling in their city? We will see if that becomes an issue. It's certainly uh, something that we're seeing on our nightly newscasts, um, and I think people are rightly worried about about that issue. And uh, policing is is one of the major responsibilities of the city. It's usually, if not the largest budget item in a city budget, it's one of the biggest. Um, and so I think that that could well emerge, uh, along with not just the, the the drug pandemic as well as as the COVID pandemic. And whenever we talk about civic elections, there is always the issue of low voter turnout. How do we address that? Or how do you get people, do you think, excited or more interested and engaged and actually going to the polls? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've I've given that a lot of thought and as have election agencies. Uh, And as much as they have tried to stimulate uh, turnout, certainly in federal and provincial levels, uh, we are still seeing a downward trend. And municipalities tend to have the the lowest uh, turnout of of all three levels of government in Canada. One thing that we do know uh, that drives uh, turnout is a perceived close race. Um, and and right now this race is is looking close, um, and if it continues to be close, that that could drive uh, turnout, uh, as well as as sort of a an issue seizing the imagination of people or a candidate seizing the imagination of people. Now, to be honest, it doesn't look like any of the candidates are seizing the imagination of the people, but as you pointed out, there are a few issues that might. Uh, and even uh, this poll as well, it shows about 7.5% support for John Cooper as the NPA mayoral candidate. Uh, and we know he's not even in the race anymore. He has withdrawn from the race. So so whether or not uh, people uh, knew that or put their tick that box thinking, well, it just will transfer to the next uh, mayoral candidate, uh, who knows. But uh, that kind of leads to also, and I know people don't like the term in many cases, vote splitting, but with so many candidates kind of in the mix what kind of an impact does that does that have do you think as far as perhaps taking votes away from another mayoral candidate well i think one of the issues that we're trying to figure out now is we're 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 seeing um we've seen a breakup of the monopoly of of the political parties that dominated vancouver politics for a long time so we had the npa the nonpartisan citizens association uh as well as cope uh, uh, a few years ago we had vision but now uh, with the financing rules changing and you can't go get large donations from a few donors, um, we're, we're seeing every candidate creating a party uh, as their own vehicle. And, and so the political landscape has become, frankly, confusing. And uh, so, so we have a three or four or five major candidates, with each with their own party. I think that this is something that voters are trying to, to figure out, and it's going to be a major challenge for them to figure out um, during the election campaign. So I rather suspect, with the vote on October 15th, uh, that a lot of this is not going to get sorted out until Thanksgiving weekend when people sort of gather and say, oh, yeah, we've got the election next week. What are you voting for? <laughs> what, what's that party? Uh, this, this, is, this is a race that I think will come down to the, to the wire. Exactly. Well, I guess it's good that uh, we anticipate people will be having those conversations. So that's a, a good thing for sure. Uh, Hamish, just before I let you go, wanted to ask you as well, I know you've been asked about this also uh, on a provincial level with talks resuming with the BCGEU. There's going to be a media blackout. So we 
we won't hear the details, but I, I know you've, you've touched on this as well. How difficult is it given the current government, the former labor leaders that now have to try and find some common ground and a deal with these public sector unions? Yes, I think many in the NDP government find themselves in an uncomfortable position. I think they've worked for unions in the past. Uh, they're a labor-friendly party. Uh, all of the labor agreements are up, and now their primary concern has to be the budget uh, rather than uh, their support for, for labor. So I think they're feeling uncomfortable, um, and I think they would like to get this issue uh, solved sooner rather than later. I think John Horgan could actually do a huge favor to David Eby or the next leader uh, by getting this uh, issue solved this fall uh, before David Eby takes over. And uh, uh, But uh, the, the NDP government doesn't seem to be any in any hurry to get this done. I think they're trying to wear the unions down. I think they're trying to get a better handle on where inflation is going. But uh, as I say, if people can't get beer for the Labor Day weekend, then the government's in trouble. <laughs> that uh, is uh, very true. Hamish hey, Telford, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome, Jill. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as mentioned, this year's return of Fraser River Sockeye, not quite the numbers that were forecast before the season. So what does that mean for any hopes of a commercial fishery, even a recreational fishery on parts of the Fraser? Well, joining us now is Greg Taylor, a fishery advisor for the Watershed Watch Salmon Society. Greg, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much, and good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, so the numbers aren't quite what we were anticipating, not what the Pacific Salmon Commission had put out earlier. What do you think has led to this? Well, I think it's uh, probably a, a combination of, uh, of, of things. Uh, you know, to put it in context, we're looking at very good uh, sockeye returns from Russia all the way to the Columbia and the, we're looking at a, a somewhat of a failure in the in the Fraser. We're, the runs are like going to be somewhat like sixty percent forecast. So, really disturbing, but not completely unsurprising either. We've seen some weakness in the South Thompson, the famous Adams River run for a few years now, and the brood and uh, brood year from this, the last dominant cycle, uh, PSC overestimated the run by two million. So it wasn't entirely unexpected to see this uh, this weakness, but still, it is disturbing because, as you just asked, it points to some real problems within the Fraser watershed that we're getting these sockeye returns in the rest of the North Pacific, but here at Fraser, we're coming so far short. And why is that, do you think, though, that we're seeing, uh, like you said, some of the other rivers in the United States where they're able to have fisheries and we're seeing the runs so much b bigger than what we're seeing here? Well, a lot of experts have uh, pointed that uh, sockeye in the southern range along that South Thompson area are going to be the most vulnerable to uh, climate change. Of course, you've got uh, throughout that area uh, a great deal of habitat degradation and disruption. Um, so many people have moved into that area. Uh, we see weak changes in the Salish Sea. We see fish farms. It's 
I imagine when they put it all together, it's not going to be one smoking gun, but a combination of all those factors that are weakening the sockeye productivity throughout and salmon productivity throughout portions of the uh, Fraser watershed. But don't those issues also, if it was a combination of all of those issues, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that also have an impact on, say, the Columbia or on some of the other rivers as well? Good question, and that's why I, I uh, say it's probably a combination, and uh, and scientists are going to have to tease out what is the greater factor and what is the what is it? What is it? Um, could it be the you know the the, the water temperatures, the freshwater temperatures, could it be something in the Salish Sea? Because, of course, what you just referred to was the Columbia. They go with the Columbia, not through the Salish Sea and through the Broughton Archipelago. Could it be something on the migration route for these fish? I don't, the scientists haven't come down to what the, the key issue is. But I think the important thing is it is changing. And I think we as people have got to change our focus, too. We've always looked at this as a uh, harvest opportunity, as an opportunity to kill fish. And really, we should be celebrating the fish that do come back and maybe change our focus from, you know, what it was in my career 30 years ago when we had these robust commercial fisheries. The commercial fishery, as I knew it, as you know it, as people think of it, is long gone. Um, we've got to be thinking about the future, and that future is conserving and restoring salmon populations. All right, Greg, we'll have to leave it there for today. We're right out of time. That is Greg Taylor, a fishery advisor for the Watershed Watch Salmon Society. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's time now to check back in with our contributor, Raji Sohal, talking about a Victoria couple. They have helped out a Ukrainian family through the Help Ukraine Vancouver Island program that helps to provide food and housing. Hey, Raji. Hi, Jill. This is a good news story I'm so excited to tell you about because I love a good news story. I want to tell you about the story of Eugene and Diane. This is a pair of uh, people who lived on the same floor down the hall from one another in a condo building in Victoria. They eventually became more than neighbors and they decided to get married. They realized that they were going to have this spare condo uh, between the two of them once they moved in with one another And they thought, hey, why don't we make it available to one of these Ukrainian families that's seeking to immigrate here? However, their faiths required that they get married before moving in together. So what did they do? They bumped their wedding up early in order to be able to accommodate the family, uh, to free up that condo, to basically give it to a mother-daughter pair from Ukraine uh, on a temporary basis. That pair is Ninal and her 31-year-old daughter, Olga. And they did this to help them get their start in settling in BC. Here's how they tell the story. When I moved in here, I met Diane. And, you know, we sort of were just neighbors for, you know, a couple of years. And then circumstances, you know, we just began to talk a little bit more and everything. And, you know, we became a couple, um, still maintaining our own individual units, um, mm-hmm. condos. When this all happened with um, Ukraine, what's going on there, we had already talked about getting married. And basically, this kind of sped things up a little bit, I guess you could say. Yeah, there was a posting that said, if you could host um anybody coming from Ukraine, right? And I thought, well, can we, right? So it was a commitment for 90 days. And I thought, well, why wouldn't we after that? I mean, Mm -hmm. we're sitting here with two places. 
um, which we'll maintain too afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Like kind of, and um, yeah, so could we do that? Sure. So mm -hmm. here we are. <laughs> as it was for the last five years it's picture like a college dorm right we just kind of pitter patter 25 steps away from each other pajamas whatever you know and kind of kind of have two homes right mm -hmm. so it was easy to sort of give up his bedroom over there and the rest of the condo really kind of the motivating factor is, is that mm -hmm. diane is catholic and i'm a baha'i yeah. and basically we can't just live together yeah. so rather than you know, at some point in the future, getting married, we decided to get married so that we could live together mm -hmm. and that um, Ninel and Olga could um, use my home. Yeah, we had just gotten back from Cape Breton. So we were just kind of here as newly married and stuff, right? Living out of two different residences. And then it was like, well, they're coming Saturday on the bus from the ferry. Can you pick them up? And it was like, mm -hmm. okay. So we got a, um, a text about 20 to 11 <laughs> and they were arriving at 11 o'clock downtown. Oh, wow. That happened really yeah. quickly. Yeah, it was, right? Very quick. So, yeah. So he was sort of in the process of moving stuff over. The fridge was full for them with food and nuts. We picked them up on Douglas Street coming off the back of a bus with all their belongings. And what was it like for you to be able to help them right away, okay. right when they needed it? What did that feel like for you? Well, it's, it's, it's very emotional mm -hmm. because you see two people that are exhausted. It took them four days to get here mm -hmm. on maybe two hours sleep, right? Um, not speaking the language, right? So there's that. They speak Russian and... Uh, universal i mean humans we have a universal language anyway right so i think when they got off the bus i think i remember <laughs> i said my arms are open and i said ninel it's us <laughs> right and she just kind of came off the bus and her daughter and we just hugged each other and then came home and yeah here we are right for me, it was kind of like, you, you know, I guess I, you know, call myself a Christian, right? Well, am I, right? You know, it was almost like getting shaken. I'm not going to say from another place, but maybe, right? It was like, well, are you, Diane? You know, do you do you feed people when you can? Do you, you know, um, are you compassionate? Are you? <clears throat> so I had to look at myself, right? Like, take a darn good look at who is Diane at this time in my life. And I thought, well, do you do everything that you believe? Yeah. And it's like, well, here's an opportunity to, to kind of put that to the test. Yeah. And so that's kind of where it came from, right? We have everything that we need. I mean, mm -hmm. life isn't perfect, but for no one is it perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds like everything came together, stars aligned, and they were able to do a really good thing. Yeah. And so they are one month in of three months uh, that they've signed up for to provide housing and food for this Ukrainian family, for Nanal and her daughter, Olga. And it's it, like you say, the stars aligned. It really did. It really worked out for them that they were able to make this happen. Um, they said that they are likely to continue to provide uh, the housing for this family after that three months because they've gotten on so well. And of course, Jill, I did try and communicate with Ninal and Olga. They don't quite speak English yet. So they're learning. They're trying their best. Um, so I didn't include that tape because uh, it was a lot of silence. <laughs> but we are, they're trying, they're using a translation app to speak with uh, Eugene and Diane a lot 
Olga's already got work. Nanal really wants to work with animals. This isn't easy by any means, but it's just incredible that this Victoria couple was able to coordinate and make it happen. And they say they already feel like family. It's a lovely story. I was looking at this too, and I'm not sure if you touched on this or, or talked to them about this. They even kind of got around the fact that it sounds like in one of the buildings or in their building that they're not allowed to actually rent out the condos. So they said, well, no problem because we're not charging them rent. So it's just like people are here visiting us. Exactly. Yeah. So a little loophole they're able to make good on for um, these this wonderful couple, this family pair from uh, the Ukraine. So um, I would love to check in with these folks down the line and give you guys an update as things progress for Ninal and her daughter Olga. Yeah, because it does sound like they're here, like you said, looking for work and trying to really start again. And I'm always taken by those stories, too, on what that must be like and if there is the hope or the dream of returning to Ukraine. Yeah, we didn't get too far into that. From what I understand is they're going to try and make a go of it here as much as possible. There there are so many incredible programs here to help people with the, the first foundation of just starting to settle here, of learning English, of trying to find work, of trying to find housing. All that stuff is such a challenge. So I'm glad to know that there are programs that help people integrate here and uh, I guess see how things go back home. For Ninal and Olga, I learned that they still have a lot of family there uh, that were not able to leave. And so it, that's obviously still home to them, too. All right. Uh, Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, let's take a look at some science news. And this has to do with NASA's Artemis One lunar mission taking off later this month, just a few days from now. On board, when it blasts off, there will be four science experiments. And one of those experiments is going to be from Canada, right here in BC, out of UBC. So what is going up in space and what are we hoping to learn? Well, Hamid, Gaikani is joining us now, a UBC PhD candidate. Thank you so much for joining us, for being with us this morning. Hi, hello. Good morning. My pleasure. Good morning to you. I know you're working very closely with UBC Pharmaceutical Sciences Professor Dr. Corey Nislow about this. So yeast and algae being sent into space. What is this actually going to look like? And can you talk a bit more about what is being sent? Yeah, we are sending the yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, to the space because uh, it's been used for many, many years to study DNA damage, and it's a very appropriate model uh, to study mechanisms that are involved in either response to DNA damage or fixing those. Uh, so we thought uh, it can be a very good candidate to study the effect of uh, cosmic radiation as well as microgravity in a space. And on the other hand, we are sending uh, algae, chlamydominus, uh, to the space because we also need some information about uh, algae and plants, uh, you know, how to probably grow them in a space. Uh, interesting. So sending up this, uh, from what I understand, so a single cell green algae and then these yeast um, mutants as well. How big of a parcel or how how big is the actual physical thing that you'll be sending up into space? Uh, I think the whole room that we have in this uh, uh, spacecraft is as big as a, a shoebox, maybe. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. So did you have to be picky then on, on what specifically you put into uh, this to give to use up your space? Like you said, you've yeah. been given the size of a shoebox. Yes, exactly. We are working with uh, some uh, great collaborators in the U.S. And they've been involved in uh, engineering that part. And we are mostly working on the biology of this uh, study. Yeah. And so looking at what happens to uh, the yeast and to the algae when uh, it comes back after it's been uh, been subject to cosmic rays, to, to near-zero gravity, what are you hoping for then, or what would be the best-case scenario on when the samples come back and then you get to study what's happened? Yeah, so we are uh, sending a collection of yeast uh, that uh, contains almost 6,000 deletions. Uh, I mean, in each strain, one gene is deleted, and uh, they have unique barcodes. So in a space, uh, when they face this uh, stresses, like microgravity and stress, uh, each strain can grow either faster or slower based on the gene that is deleted. Uh, so when they are back uh, on Earth, we can... Uh, grow them for like two days and then find out the difference between uh, growth for each strain. So we can find the genes uh, that are more effective in, uh, you know, maybe fixing the damages or protecting the cells under stresses. And the the length of the mission, so this is the spacecraft that's going to go, so an uncrewed spacecraft, from what I understand, the 42-day orbit around the moon and then coming back. How significant is it, the, the length of the mission? Uh, for us, I think uh, this time is enough because we are working with a single organism and 42 days is even more than enough to... Uh, you know, uh, allow us to observe this effect on cellular components. And you mentioned this as well, kind of DNA damage and learning from this. Is the hope being then we'll learn more about what happens uh, to these cells when they're in space? And then will that be used or, or that information could be used for uh, health breakthroughs here or more health research here? Um, you know, uh, even though I'm saying DNA damage uh, in a space, this cosmic radiation can damage anything in the cell, any cellular components. But, but DNA is the most important one because uh, sometimes it can cause mutations and then, uh, you know, cause very important consequences like cancer uh, in humans. So uh, as NASA is going beyond, you know, now to the moon and in a few years, probably to Mars, uh, we are having longer and longer space missions. So we should be able to protect, protect astronauts. And these data would be really helpful to be able to protect uh, astronauts either with uh, some countermeasures like drugs or with uh, genome engineering in the future. And I understand this is the first time in quite some time that biological material has been sent in an experiment like this to show what happens with the exposure to the cosmic radiation and such. Uh, is it your hope then or that this we get this experiment done and you're able to study it and then potentially be part of future NASA missions? Uh, yeah, that's the hope, yeah. 
I personally have some limitations to be involved in uh, NASA missions directly because of my nationality. Uh, but yeah, I think the group can uh, work uh, in future uh, clo- more closely with NASA. Yeah. And how long will it take, do you think, or kind of is there a game plan then for when the material comes back after that 42-day orbit? Is it kind of all hands on deck looking at it and analyzing it? Or how long uh, do you think that part of the experiment or the, the, um, the project will take? I don't have any specific timeline right now, but based on the conversation I had with my professor, Corinne Islow, he said it's not going to be very quickly. So I think at least uh, a month after the mission is done. And I would imagine too, so for that 48 days, it's going to, going to be, is it going to be difficult to, to wait and to be anticipating the return of the Artemis? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Hamid, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this. So we look forward as well to getting an update and seeing how things go with this experiment. Thank you so much for your time today. Yes, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Hamid Gakani, a UBC PhD candidate student, and again, working very closely with pharmaceutical sciences professor Dr. Corey Nislow, sending yeast and algae cultures into space. I understand it's been the, this is the first time in about 50 years that type of material has been sent into space. Their project itself, they get a pod about the size of a shoebox, and they will then study the effects of cosmic rays and near-zero gravity on living organisms. We'll get an update on that when the samples come back and we find out more about that.